dare great things for Christ. Christ calls us to dare great things. In the marketplace, as well as in the mission field, there has never been a time like the present for the spirit of the Catholic entrepreneur. Now is the time for men and women of great courage and great vision to engage our church and our culture. Now is the time to dare great things. And here is your host as we dare great things, Father Nathan Cromley, the president and founder of the St. John Institute. Leading our families and leading our businesses entails taking our people to places that are new. When we do that, conflict almost always ensues. New ideas, new relationships, they force us to confront old ways of thinking and bring about change. A lot of people don't like that. St. Paul the Apostle also dealt with conflict, and here's how he overcame it. Okay, so you're gathered here because you want to go deeper in leadership. And I think that that's awesome, uh, especially following the Lord Jesus in his call to be a leader in today's world. Uh, and so I want to talk to you today about St. Paul and looking especially at how St. Paul was a man constantly surrounded by conflict and sometimes in a violent way and how he dealt with that in his leadership. So before we begin, as always, let's start with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, O Holy Spirit, Father of the poor, illumine the hearts of thy faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us in the same spirit to be truly wise and ever to rejoice in his consolation. Through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. St. John, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I think if I were to ask most of you what you think about a saint is, right, and how you think a saint would act, I, I think most of you would imagine someone like, I don't know, St. Francis of Assisi, right? This medieval figure, you know, dr dressed in a, a brown robe who walks around and little animals come up to him and everybody loves him and he's this, he's this man of peace, right? And there's a ton of stories about that. Uh, and I, I think that most of you would think that any saint that wasn't a monk or a nun, you know, uh, would somehow like... Uh, just fail to be a saint, right? Because when you look at your own lives, if I thought, are you living the life of a saint right now? I wonder how many would actually think that they were. And then I would say, well, if you're not living the life of a saint, why aren't you? Right? You've only got one life to live. You, and the only option here is to become a saint. That is to become a person who lives in heaven, a person who's a friend of Christ. And, and do, do you believe that doing business can make you a saint? Do you believe that being an entrepreneur can sanctify you? Do you believe that your family is your only way? You're going to become a saint by and in your family. I think there are a lot of people tend to say, yes, yes. I think that that is making me a saint <laughs> more so than the troubles in their business. 
But in any case, you as a leader engaging the, the people around you, engaging the culture around you in the name of God, do you really think this is going to make you a saint? I want to, to speak to you there first because the good news, everybody, is that this needs to be making you a saint. If you are not a saint at the end of your life, you have encountered the ultimate failure. <laughs> and because it, being a saint means someone who's in heaven. Now, being a canonized saint, ah, that means someone whose heavenly holiness is recognized on earth by the Pope. All right, well, that's like a whole different thing. That's up to God. If he really wants to make everyone on earth know that you were holy in order to inspire everyone else on earth, he asks that first you die, and then after you're dead, <laughs> so it doesn't go to your head, in other words, <laughs> only then, then he recognizes you as a saint. But if you're doing stuff here on earth and it's not leading you towards heaven, towards God, well, then why are you doing it? And I think a lot of us are like, oh, man, what does that mean, Father Nathan? I'm not a monk. I'm not a priest, right? And I'm like, that doesn't matter. You can be a saint here. As a matter of fact, you need to be a saint as a business leader. You need to be a saint as a professional. You need to be a saint as a mom in the household. But that, that sanctity, it, it oftentimes looks conflictual, much more than Pacific. That's why we don't think of it. We want to say instead that, no, there's no way I can be a saint when my life consists of mowing the law, lawn and watching Jeopardy. I'm like, well, yeah, your life might consist of a little bit more than that. <laughs> but if you, if you take care of your kids, if you take care of your spouse, and then you mow your lawn, and then you watch some Jeopardy on the side, okay, you can still make it in there. But the point is the normal life of an every average day person can be full of God. It is not just the monks and the nuns who become saints. And that means that saints don't always look like monks and nuns. And when you look at the life of St. Paul, you do not see a monk. This guy is so far from being a monk, it's not even funny. I mean, he's definitely holier than any other monks. I mean, he's one of the 12 apostles. He's the great apostle. But his holiness did not consist in praying every day, seven times a day, chanting the Psalms in stone chapels. His holiness was incredibly practical. He was on the road with his feet getting dirty. If you look at Paul's second missionary journey, which lasts from Acts 15 to Acts 18, he covered 800 miles on foot. 800 miles on foot. I mean, just, I mean, think about how long it takes you to walk one mile, right? 20 minutes. Well, now do that times 800. The man walked for like 50 days just walking on the road as he was proclaiming the gospel. He was in 11 different cities. And 10 of those 11 cities uh, were places where, where Paul had suffered rejection. He was rejected. He was beaten. He was beaten by canes. He was imprisoned. He was arrested at least twice, brought before the judges in marketplaces, brought before the city tribunals. There were people beaten up around him. There were men breathing murderous threats all around him. His friends were hauled off into jail. This is not the life of a monk. This is the life of a person who is bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ and his message into hostile territory 
And as he's doing that, he's founding organizations to, to continue that messaging in that hostile territory. I mean, think about it. When he brings in a, a Christian church, he's saying, hey, that scene message that got me into trouble in your city, I now want you to continue that message here. <laughs> I mean, and so he had organizational leadership. He had to think about who was going to run those communities. He had to think about how they were going to continue on. He had to think about, did they know their mission statement valiantly enough? He had to think about how they're going to incorporate new members. You know, he had onboarding uh, problems. He had turnover problems. He had all kinds of problems. And as he was doing that, it was so that those communities could radiate the peace of Christ. I think St. Paul, in other words, challenges us to change the notion of holiness that we have in our heads. Not saying that it's morally equivalent to any kind of, you know, some sort of like the, the moral deficiencies of our own life. But to say that our lifestyle does not dictate our chances for sanctity and holiness. In fact, St. Paul learned how to be holy and a saint in and through the conflict and the difficulties of a missionary founder of a missionary organization. Father Nathan is producing an ongoing source of videos to form, unite, and inspire you and your family. Go to eagleeyeministries.org. That's E-A-G-L-E-E-Y-E ministries.org and subscribe to Eagle Eye Pro. Subscribe today. So when we look at the life of St. Paul together, I think all of us, uh, you know, ought to be astounded. We take a look at Acts uh, alone and see the different places he hits incredible conflict. I'm just looking at Lystra, for example. This is Acts 14, 19. The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. <laughs> I don't know if he caught that or not. <laughs> supposing that he was dead. Folks, St. Paul was actually beaten to death. And they dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And so then that means that they left him laying there on the desert ground and walked away. Verse 20, the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city and the next day went on with Barnabas to Derby. Oh my goodness. He was beaten to death, St. Paul, for what he had to say. And then you take a look at, just take a look at the next one, right? Paul and Barnabas separate. This is Acts 15, uh, verse 38. Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Well, now he's got a conflict not just on the outside. He's got conflict on the inside. Barnabas was his mentor. Barnabas was the fellow who went and worked with Paul for a year in Antioch preaching the gospel to the very first Gentile converts. Barnabas was with him in, Der in Derby and with him in Lystra when he was actually stoned to death. I mean, stoned, they thought he was dead. I mean, and Barnabas was with him that whole time and now Paul and Barnabas have a sharp disagreement. A cataclysm is what it actually, a, par a paroxysm is what it says in Greek, a paroxysm. A and, and then they separate. 
my gosh. So then he had to think, well, gosh, if my own mentor doubts me, well, well then where will I be? And he had to just keep on going. After he converts with uh, Lydia in, in Philippi, look what happens then. He frees a, a slave girl who's possessed by the, a demon. This is Acts 16, 16 to 18. And then when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, you know, they said, these men are Jews. They're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. <laughs> And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Feet in stocks, surrounded by darkness, beaten by rods, with a jail cell door slammed shut over them. Paul and Silas spend the night and of course, we know how that happens. You know, God comes and sets them free. They baptize the jailer. It's just incredible. But then it doesn't stop. So then after that, Paul goes on to Thessalonica. And what happens? He says, the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men. This is Acts 17, 5. From the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. Right? For when they could not find Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city's authorities, shouting, these men have turned the world upside down and have come here also. Jason has received them and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar. And the people and city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. It's like, and so Paul and Silas, they slipped into Berea. And what happens into Berea? The brothers then sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived in the Jewish synagogue, these Jews were more noble. They received the word with blessing, etc. But when the Jews from Thessalonica, this is uh, Acts 17, 13, learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way by sea. And it just keeps on going. When you hear all of that, and that's only in Paul's second missionary journey, it ought to make you just give pause here. Look at all of the conflict that Paul had to undergo as a leader. And all the conflict that he caused. You could say that too. Because as he's doing that, of course, he's bringing people into this. His friends into this. People that at, maybe at one point in time thought that they were at peace in their life. Now they have to make decisions. And Paul has to constantly face the consequences of that conflict. And, and I mean, the physicality of the time of Paul. You can just think what happens to him in Corinth when they bring him in front of, of the, uh, of the uh, tribunal there. And the tribunal ends up saying, no, I'm not going to judge Paul. And what do they do? They take the people that accused Paul and they beat them right in front of everybody else. I mean, this is almost as violent as social media today. <laughs> I'm not talking about that, of course, saying social media is a violent place. But in terms of our reputations, Social media is absolutely the battleground. And whole crowds are rise up and they dislike you or they say they put bad reviews up about your businesses just to troll you. 
And there are places that have had to shut down. There are places that could not wither the attack because the attack just, you know, was too strong for them. There are, there are businesses and business leaders who have to deal with that all the time, watching that social media because those are the crowds and those who are jealous can stir up the crowds. And it seems like the crowds don't seem to care about business, about success, about jobs, about anything. They just are swayed by public opinion. And we look at this in the same way in our lives, the bullies at school, the bully moms that, that come after us in our family leadership. So anywhere there that we are, any place that we go, we have to accept this fundamental fact. When Jesus Christ asks us to lead, it means that we become like the prow of a ship. We smash through waves. The waves of indifference, the waves of habits that are formed, the waves of opinions that are already going against us. Conflict is a part of leadership. My question is, do you see it also as a part of holiness? Why did God allow Paul to have such conflict in his life? Paul, who's called to be a saint. Isn't it because some way or another that conflict can become a place where we glorify God? How am, as a leader, can I take the conflict that's in front of me, the challenges that face me from others, the opinions about me that I have to shape in order to succeed, how can I transform that into a prayer? How can I make that an act whereby I glorify Christ? Father Nathan has founded the St. John Institute, the MBA program that develops students into the leaders of tomorrow by giving them a missionary's heart and an entrepreneur's mind. Visit our website at stjohninstitute.org. Dare great things for Christ. So St. Paul had to deal with immense conflict. Uh, we, we, we saw that, right? I mean, crowds rioting around him, his friends being dragged out into the market. He's in front of judges. He's being beaten. He's being separated. He's apart from Peter. The, he's apart from the other apostles. He's by himself out there founding churches. And sure, he's making friends. I mean, he's got lots of good things too, but, but how does he overcome feeling bad about all this? I mean, I think about the thing about, you know, con conflict and leadership is that we don't want to hurt people. We don't want people to feel badly about us. And that's, of course, a good thing. I mean, we, we want to be nice. We got into leadership because we wanted to do good in this world. And then, well, then you start to lose friends and then people start to accuse you of things or then you, you have to make decisions of parting ways with people who are good people, but they just aren't the right fit, right, for your organization. And so inside you, you, you say, well, this isn't worth it. Or the fact that there's so much conflict in the end, it's like not what I want to be in life, but I want to be a leader. And if I want to be a leader, that means that sometimes people aren't going to like what I have to do. I have to go left and not right. And a lot of people think that I should go right and not left. And I have to make a decision. Forks in the road. So that people can continue to follow the momentum that I've got in front of me. Right? But how do I deal with that inside? And to a great degree, you can understand that Paul's success here in Acts as a leader depends on how he deals with that conflict, how he's going to manage it. Because if Paul for a second stopped 
and allowed the conflict to, to dominate his life, well, then we, he would not have continued to preach the gospel. The church would not have continued to be founded. And the gospel would not have reached its full fruitfulness. So the choice is really simple. Either I accept that the conflict is, is part of what's in front of me as my task as a leader, or I think that the conflict is a sign of my failure. For so many of us today, we think that conflict is a sign of failure. If, every, if I was doing it right, everyone would be behind me. If I was doing it right, then everyone would love me. If I was doing it right, then I wouldn't hurt anybody. And I think that that's the big mistake. It's a mind game here, folks. What if, in fact, the conflict was already there and by bringing it out, you're actually doing God's work of making peace? A peacemaker is someone who goes into where there's conflict and brings resolution. Peace is not always good feelings. Peace is not always everybody being happy. Peace, says St. Augustine, is the fruitfulness of order. That's a great definition. My job as a leader is not to make everyone happy. It's to make sure that I leave the world behind me in a better place, in a proper place, in a clean place, in a place where there is order, where things are the way that they should be. And that means that, yeah, I'm, I'm fighting, but I'm fighting disorder. <laughs> I'm fighting mistakes. My, my job as a leader, in other words, is not to make everyone happy. It's to make everybody better. I want you to really think about that because when you're starting your entrepreneurial event, when you're out there trying to make this, you know, happy and, and your, your investors turn you down, your, your, your first employees, they, they, they turn on you. They speak bad about your board. Your board lacks confidence in what you got going on. And you find yourself up at three in the morning working on the next presentation, trying to, to get somebody on board because your, your original investment's going to run out unless you can get a bridge loan, you know. And so then you're just finding yourself completely alone saying, why am I doing this? You've got to go back to your heart to your original motivation, and you mustn't allow that, you mustn't allow yourself to question that. Your bedrock that you stand on is your inner fire and your motivation to do what is right and what is good. If your inner fire and your bedrock motivation is to make money, well then no wonder. I mean, you're basically motivated by yourself, right? So that's not the motivation of a Christian. And if that is your motivation, you need to make it deeper. It's not a matter of not wanting to make money. It's, it's not a matter of not wanting to be profitable. It's a matter, though, of saying the deeper motivation of, that I'm doing this for is for God. And that deeper motivation for God means that it's also for this world, that I'm, I've attached a deeper sense of mission to what I'm doing than my own profitability. And therefore, it's that deeper motivation. You know the story where John Scully gets recruited into Apple uh, accordingly, according to the story, Steve Jobs reached out to him. He was, and he said to him, Hey, just, so when do you, are you going to get tired of selling sugar water and join me in changing the world? <laughs> Apple at that time was being built as the company that would change the world. That was a revolutionary company. It was a company for rebels. It, he had a deeper motivation. I like to think that, that he could have gone deeper still than where, where he chose to go. But at the same time, that deeper motivation to change the world is what motivated him. When you, when you look at Elon Musk, as controversial as he might be for his opinions on things as well, 
At the same time, Elon Musk, he wants to build a new world. So he's just doing it through cars. He's doing it through spaceships. But he, he's deep down inside wants to make the world a better place. At least he says so. And so with you, why would you then look at your life and say it's just a job? It's just, I, all, I'm, all I'm doing is being a nurse. I mean, are you kidding me? You're not just bringing nurse, you're bringing Christ's compassionate love effectively to the most needy of people at the worst time in their life. And that's why you're made to be a nurse. You're made to be a nurse because you're made to enter into that conflict. You're made to be an entrepreneur because you, you are the only one that could make something happen in this environment. No one else has that idea that you have. That's why you're leading the charge about it. And you need to galvanize yourself inside and say it's not the waves around smashing the boat that means that the boat is bad. The boat was, boat was meant for the waves. The boat wasn't meant for the harbor, everybody. It was meant for the high seas. Well, your life wasn't meant for safety and security and comfort. Your life was made as a warrior for God to bring peace into a classroom full of unruly students. And to bring correct order into the life of an uneducated child. And to bring good, sound business practices so that your employees can actually have good and sound and, 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 and secure bases for their life. So that psychologically they can be secure in who they are and raise their family in peace. Well, no one else can do that but you. The leader has to accept that the conflict is his his arena and the arena that he has chosen so that he can bring peace to that conflict by bringing order. The leader is the one that looks out of the world and says, I, I am not afraid. I was made for this. I was made not for, for this conflict, for this challenge, for this opportunity, because this is where Christ needs to be. When he was on this earth, he was surrounded by conflict. He was accused. He was maligned. He was defending. He was also proposing and moving forward and leaving behind him a smooth wake called the life of grace. From Jesus Christ to St. Paul to you, Leadership thrives in the conflict because leadership is a call through and in conflict to bring peace, the peace of order, the order of the kingdom of God. Dare great things for Christ. Share your feedback with Father Nathan. Send us an email at info at stjohninstitute.org. That's info at stjohninstitute.org. And don't forget to subscribe to premium video content to form, unite, and inspire you at Eagle Eye Pro on our website, eagleeyeministries.org. That's eagleeyeministries.org.